If, uh, if you've ever had the, the privilege of traveling to Europe and you made your way through Florence, Italy, it is my hope that you had made time to visit the, uh, the Academia Museum there in Florence. Now, the Academia Museum, you, none of you may know what this museum is. But in the Academia, there is a hall, a long corridor called the Hall of Slaves. And down the Hall of Slaves, there are on either side four unfinished statues that were begun by the famous sculptor Michelangelo of the 1500s. These four statues have pictures of slaves or prisoners, depending upon uh, who you listen to in, in history, that, that are still in their sort of rough uh, stage of, of completion uh, in their sculpture. And they're not fully uh, released from the granite, the marble, excuse me, the marble stone that they are a part of, if you uh, can imagine that. Some think that Michelangelo intentionally left these sculptures unfinished so as to depict what it was like to be a slave, to not be completely free. They are still somehow entrapped by the marble that they are stuck in. And these unfinished slaves line this long corridor. But as amazing as these sculptures are and interesting as they are, they pale in comparison. They fade into the background because of what is at the end of this corridor. At the end of the Hall of Slaves, standing 17 feet tall, weighing over six tons, in the middle of this sunlit vestibule stands Michelangelo's David. And if you've ever been to Florence and you've been to the Academia Museum, which I have, and you have stood in that vestibule looking at David, at Michelangelo's David, there is nothing else in the world that can take your attention away from this magnificent sculpture. It was intended to be placed atop a cathedral in Florence. And, and so because of its massive size there on, on top of the cathedral, it, it, would have been, it would have been perceived much smaller. But I think the beauty, the grandeur of Michelangelo's David is far more uh, fitting, more suitable for this small vestibule. I mean, it, just, it towers, it fills up this entire room. And every person, by the hundreds, when I went to go see it, there were probably 200 people crammed into this little vestibule, maybe more. And not a single person was looking at their camera, talking to their friends. Nobody was looking at anything. All eyes were fixed on Michelangelo's David. It is quite literally breathtaking. It is the focus of the eyes and the attention of every person that walks down that corridor, down that hall of slaves. It is the focus of every person's attention that is standing in that vestibule because it is so magnificent. Likewise, Jesus, the Son of God, King of the cosmos, come in flesh, is magnificent. He is breathtaking. And, and He is worthy. He is deserving of every bit of our attention, every bit of our devotion to Him. Because in contrast to Jesus, everything else in this world, no matter how great, no matter how, how appealing it might be, pales in comparison to who He is is because Jesus, the son of God, is the rightful king of the kingdom of heaven, rightful king of the cosmos. He alone should be the focus of our faith and of our worship as the church of God and as individual beings. Jesus should be the center of our attention in every moment of the day, in every moment of our worship and our gathering for Bible study. If Jesus is not the focus, we're distracted by other things, we're missing something. 
we're missing him. And so here in Matthew chapter 14, we see in four different places the kind of focused faith, the kind of focused worship that Jesus is calling for and some various different points of application from them. First in verses 1 through 12, we see that a focused faith, a faith focused on Jesus, only on him, is sometimes a fatal commitment. That's a great way to start a sermon, right? Sometimes a focused faith is a fatal commitment. Let's look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. There the gospel writer Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests. He commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Here, chapter 14 of Matthew's gospel shifts from the, the parables and, and, and Jesus's uh, ministry there in Galilee to sort of a, a flashback uh, to a previous event regarding Herod the Tetrarch. Herod Antipas is his name uh, and John the Baptist. Here at this point in verse 1, Herod is hearing of the fame of Jesus and the miracles that he is performing in and throughout Galilee in that area. And thinking Jesus to be John the Baptist raised from the dead, that's, that's the only explanation that Herod can have for what Jesus is doing. Now, Herod knew who John the Baptist was. He had had him in prison. He knew that John was a mighty prophet doing uh, you know, great deeds and it amassed quite a following. Um, but John was dead. And at this point, Matthew gives us a, an explanation as to why John is dead. The last time we heard about John, John the Baptist, was in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 and 6, when John, already in prison, you'll remember, sent some of his disciples, some of his followers, to ask Jesus about who Jesus really was. Are you the Christ, or should we wait for another? And here in verses 1 through 12, we have an explanation from Matthew about what happened to John after he had been arrested. Now, there are, uh, my guess is, in this room, some family trees that have some crooked branches, some family trees that have some interesting pasts, okay? And maybe there are some branches in your family tree that you are not so proud of. Let me give you uh, confidence and assurance today that not a one of them is as bad or as crooked as Herod Antipas's uh, family tree. Let me paint the picture. Herod, Herod Antipas was the ruler of a, of a region. He's the son of Herod the Great, the one who sent out the, the order for all the babies that were born in Bethlehem in the area to, to be killed at the time of Jesus. So, so Herod the Great has a son, uh, Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas rules over this kind of region, uh, uh, um, over Galilee and Capernaum, that, that kind of general area where Jesus does his ministry. Um, Herod had been in an arranged marriage with a king of Arabia uh, for a, you know, just a, an arranged marriage, a marriage of peace between two kingdoms, to unite two kingdoms. Herod has a half-brother named Philip. Okay? And Philip had married a woman named Herodias. Uh, so we've got Herod and we've got Herodias. So there's a lot of Herods here, so just try to keep them straight. Herod Antipas 
loved Herodias and not the wife that he had been married to in this arranged marriage. So what did he do? He divorced his Arabian wife and Herodias divorced Herod's half-brother Philip and those two got married. So now Herod is married to his sister-in-law. That's special. Herodias and her former husband, Philip, had a daughter together. Her name was Salome. And so now uh, Salome is, uh, is now the uh, stepdaughter to her half-uncle. Okay? Yeah. Days of, our, days of our lives got nothing on Herod and his family. Okay? So here you got Herod in this incestuous relationship with his uh, half uh, with his sister-in-law, who's now his wife, and with their daughter, uh, or with, uh, goodness gracious, I can't even keep this straight. Now, his stepdaughter, Herodias' daughter, Salome, all there in the family together. And it, on Herod's birthday, he throws this big party, and all, he and all of his people just get riotously drunk. And they decide it's a good idea to have Salome, the, the daughter, which is his stepdaughter, which is also his half-niece, to come and to dance for the court, for those that are in attendance. Now, this dance uh, is not just like, you know, the hokey pokey. This is a uh, sensual uh, sort of uh, exploitative erotic dance that Salome is performing. And, oh, by the way, she's probably only about 12 or 14 years old at this time. Okay? So, big hot mess in Herod's house. As Salome dances for her uh, uncle stepdad... He is pleased with her erotic dancing, and he promises to give her anything that she would ask for, up to 50% of his kingdom if she wanted. He couldn't give 51% because then she would uh, be queen and he would no longer be king. But Salome, this young girl, goes and consults with her mother, Herodias. Says, hey, uh, uh, Antipas said he'll give me whatever I want because my dancing was so good. What should I ask for? Herodias, in her hatred for John the Baptist, because he spoke out about her incestuous marriage to Herod Antipas, her brother-in-law, says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod, as much as he wanted to put John to death, didn't want to, the text says, do it this way. He was sorry because he'd given this oath. He wasn't ready for John to die this way. And yet, because of the oath that he made and the people that were there in attendance and the, the hit that his reputation would take because of, his, uh, because of any inaction that he might, um, might take uh, in, in regard to his oath, he goes and has John the Baptist beheaded and his head brought on a platter. Now, this text, first and primarily, serves to explain to us what happened to John the Baptist. And it also foreshadows the same kind of conflict that Jesus will have with Herod Antipas in just about a year or so from this point in Matthew's gospel. This is the same Herod that Jesus will go before on trial the night of his arrest. We certainly learn and see that like John the Baptist, having a faith that is so focused upon God and his kingdom will inevitably put us at odds with earthly rulers and powers. John, in his faithfulness to God, in his devotion to God, knew that it was wrong for Herod to be married to, married, married to his sister-in-law. And he spoke out against it. He said, Herod, that's wrong. You can't do that. It's not good. It's not right. It's wrong. And Herod hated him for it. Herodias hated him for it. And John ultimately loses his head for it. Certainly this explains to us what happened to John the Baptist, but there's, there's an example, there's application for us as a church and as believers today. 
irrespective of what our earthly rulers may threaten to us, irrespective of what what earthly rulers may threaten, we must be true to speak for Christ and for righteousness in this sinful and fallen and broken world. Listen, if we're living as followers of Jesus in a consistent, in a repentant, in a godly way, we cannot remain silent about things that God has called sinful. John the Baptist knew this. He knew the consequences of speaking clearly about the wrongful nature of Herod's incestuous marriage. Likewise, we who call ourselves by Christ's name, we call ourselves Christians, we cannot ever place our hope in political rulers or political kings in this world to bring the righteousness of God to bear in all situations. We are led by elected leaders, but who are sinful just as much as we are. We can't hope that they can in any ever, any perfect way bring the righteousness of God to bear. <clears throat> In this world, quite the opposite. If we're faithfully following Jesus, speaking the truth in love to a broken and sinful culture, we should expect to find ourselves enemies of both the political right and the political left at some time or another in our lives. If you are living consistently with your faith in Christ, you will find that you don't get along perfectly with either of the, uh, the two parties that, that seem to define the political system that we find ourselves in. Church, we will offend the political right when we say with confidence that the lives of black men and women and children do matter because there are lives made in the very image of God. And simultaneously, we will offend those on the political left when we fight for the lives of the unborn for the very same reason. We'll offend those on the political left when we say that earning a living by the work of your own hands is a good and godly thing to do. And that if a man will not work, he should not be paid, he should not eat. But at the same time, we'll offend those on the political right when we say that in a nation as blessed as the one that we are in, not one person should be without adequate food, shelter, and provision. No elderly person, nor widow, nor orphan should ever be left to fend for themselves when they have no resources for help and sustenance. Friends, we will offend some on the political left when we call for checks and balances against a totalitarian government. And we will offend some on the political right when we call all elected leaders to a high caliber of moral character as they serve in public office. Because irrespective of who elected them, character matters. Character counts for all who seek to serve the public good. And church, we should expect to offend rulers of all political affiliations when we say that Jesus alone is king. And we bow our knees to the will of no man but the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, King of the cosmos. One Christian scholar, A.T. Robertson, said this, that in this life it is better to have a head like John the Baptist and to lose it than to have an ordinary head and to keep it. Such a head can only be had by the one who has Jesus as their sole focus of their faith and worship. Seeking to trust no other one, seeking to please no other one, but the king and creator of the universe, Jesus. Secondly, in verses 13 through 31, we see that Jesus uses people of focused faith for his glory. Matthew writes this. Now, when Jesus heard this, that is, he heard the news of of John the Baptist's uh, execution. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came and said to him, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. 
And Jesus said, bring them to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, men besides women and children. So here, the, maybe the most famous of Jesus' miracles, the only of his miracles that's re- recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, his feeding of the 5,000. Now certainly we want to look at Jesus and, and see his divine power on display here. But let us also see what he's doing with, with those that, that, that are among him, the, the way that he's using his disciples to serve for his glory. Here, after Jesus has left Nazareth, you'll remember from last time that he was rejected by the people in his hometown. Upon hearing the word of John the Baptist's death, he goes off to a desolate place in a boat by himself to be alone. Presumably in fasting and prayer to mourn the death of his cousin and the forerunner to his ministry. But his alone time is ultimately disrupted by the crowds who are still trying to follow him. They see him go off and they just keep following after. So by the time his boat makes it back to shore, there's this crowd again. And even though Jesus is interrupted in this time of grief, time of mourning, time where he wants to be alone. The text here says that Jesus had compassion on the people and he heals their sick. This is, again, a common theme of Jesus' ministry all through Galilee, him having compassion on sick and hurting people and going out of his way, even when it's inconvenient, maybe especially when it's inconvenient, to heal those who are sick and coming to him for healing. Then at evening, after he's done his work, he's healed some folks, the people are hungry. There's 5,000 of them, 5,000 men plus women and children, and they're hungry. And the disciples say, Jesus, send them away, right? So we can get some alone time, so we can eat some dinner, and then send them into the town so that they can buy some dinner to eat. Now, presumably, the towns are not that far away because the disciples say, send them to the town so they can buy something for themselves. So the the towns are not, the cities are not a, a long walk for them to go to buy food. Instead, Jesus, though, doesn't say, yeah, okay, send them off. No, he says, don't send them away. You feed them. And the disciples say, we got five pieces of bread and two fish. And there's over 5,000 people. What do you mean we feed them? Jesus says you feed them. And in this command that Jesus gives to his disciples, he does three things. First, first, he challenges their compassion for people. Jesus, as we have already seen in this text, had compassion on those that were coming to him. And he's calling his disciples to have compassion on them too. You have means to meet their needs, Jesus says. You feed them. He also changes their view of God's provision. They say, we've only got five loaves and two small fish. Jesus says, no problem. Bring them to me. No problem. One loaf could feed maybe three people. And they've got five. So they've got enough bread for the disciples, for their, their, their close group. But there are 5,000. And Jesus says to them, give to them, feed them from what God has provided to you. It doesn't seem like much. What does he do? He orders them to bring him the food and he blesses it. And then they start handing it out. He gives it to the disciples to serve to the people. And eventually all of the people are are fed. Jesus intends to use his disciples and they're what they have been provided for the blessing and the benefit of other people who are in attendance. But then thirdly, his command to not send them away, but to feed them something also points the disciples to Jesus as the focus of their faith, as the focus of their life and obedience 
It is Jesus who is the provider in this desolate place, which we hear two times. He goes away in a desolate place to pray, and the disciples say, this is a desolate place, there's nothing to eat. Jesus is the one who, in the desolate place, in the wilderness, in the desert, is the one who provides. He's the same God who provides food for the Israelites in the wilderness. We read that in uh, the, the, the same, uh, pointing to that in John's gospel, John chapter 6. And Jesus is the same God who multiplies little things to sustain many and for a long time. He's the one who's greater than Moses, who, through whom was provided food for the Israelites. He's greater than the great prophet Elijah, who in 1 Kings 17 blesses the oil and the flour of the poor widow and her son so that it lasts until the drought is over. Here Jesus takes five loaves, two fish, blesses it, and feeds over 5,000 people with 12 baskets remaining. Certainly Jesus is powerful, but Jesus also uses people. Jesus isn't the one serving people himself. What does he do? He calls his disciples to do it. You give them something to eat, and then he blesses it, and he gives the food to them to feed the 5,000. Friends, this morning, we, like the disciples, do well to set our faith on Jesus and to ask him how he might use us to compassionately meet the needs of others in his power and for his glory. When we have Jesus at the center of our trust, center of our faith, we see rightly how all things are, as Paul says, from him and for him. All that we have is from Christ. All that we have is for him. The bread and the fish the disciples had is ultimately from the provision of Christ and used for his glory. The disciples, the the, the food that the disciples have isn't for them. It's not even for the crowds primarily. But it's for a demonstration of Jesus' compassion and his glory as he multiplies that food and then gives it to his disciples with orders to serve the needy people. So what is it then that God has given you that seems ordinary? Five loaves, two fish, not much. Got 45 bucks in my checking account. What is it that God has given to you that seems ordinary or plain or little? Things that maybe you have been using for yourself or only looking at for how you can benefit your own life or meet your own needs. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's a talent, a gift that you have. Maybe it's spare time that is there during your day. What are the things that you have that seem ordinary that that God has given to you that what he really wants to do, what he really desires to do is to take it, take the little bit that he's given you and bless it and multiply it so that he can use you as a servant of his provision and blessing to others and for his glory. What are those things? Look, without Jesus as the focus of our faith, we'll never see those things that God intends to use for his purposes, for his glory as he blesses them. But at the same time, without Jesus at the focus of our faith, we'll never think we have enough money to give to the church or to the needy. We'll never be able to fathom leaving our home to serve on a foreign mission field. We'll never be able to, without Jesus as the focus of our faith, even be able to see the time that has been given to us to serve our local church alongside brothers and sisters in Jesus. Without Jesus as the focus of our faith, we'll never see rightly what he has provided and how he intends to use it for his glory. But when Jesus is our focus, as he was for the disciples here in this passage, he then orients our priorities around his glory. Catch that? Our priorities shift to not what I want or what's best for me in this moment, but to what Christ wants and what is most glorifying to Jesus in this moment. 
He orients our priorities around his glory. And he sees to it that all of his purposes are perfectly met in us as we faithfully follow him. Friend, are you trusting? Christian, are you trusting Jesus with the kind of focused faith that these disciples had? That though they had little, trusted Jesus with it to do what he would for his purposes and for his glory. Are you trusting Jesus with everything that you have and asking that he would glorify himself in your life through those things? Third, in verses 22 through 32, we see that Jesus intends and uses trials to focus our faith and our worship on him. Jesus intends, that is, he purposes, and he uses trials, difficulties to intensify our faith, to focus our faith and our worship on him. Look at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. This is right after feeding the 5,000 and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. At the end of the feeding of the 5,000, perhaps toward early evening, maybe approaching 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening, Jesus sends his disciples into the boat to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And during the fourth watch of the night, that is between 3 and 6 a.m., a great storm falls on the sea. The Sea of Galilee is known for these uh, small squalls that would kind of just come up out of nowhere. And, and you have these really sort of violent storms on the sea. seems that one of those came upon the disciples. This should call our attention back, or you should be reminded of Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, right there where Jesus and the disciples are in the boat on the sea, and there's a great storm, and Jesus is asleep in the middle of the boat, and the disciples cry out, Lord, save us, right? We're sinking. And Jesus gets up, says, peace, be still, and everything, all the, the storm quiets. Here in this storm, though, Jesus is not with the disciples. They're by themselves. And in their distress at the storm, they look out in the middle of the night and see Jesus walking on the water toward them. And, I don't know, maybe understandably, initially, they think it's a ghost. Ah! Right? They're stressed out, right? Tensions are high. They don't know what's going on. And now they see a person walking on the water to them. No other sort of earthly explanation other than this must be a ghost. And immediately... Jesus speaks to them, saying, take heart, it is I. He actually uses here, Matthew records Jesus using the same Greek formulation that God says of himself in Exodus 3 when he's speaking to Moses and gives his name to Moses. I am. Jesus says, take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. His immediate response, Jesus' immediate response to their fear and to their wrongful thinking of him being a ghost demonstrates his divinity Right, That he knows the thoughts of his disciples and he rebukes their wrong thinking. Take heart, 
Be encouraged. I am. It's me. Not a ghost. It's Jesus. And his statement, I am, is a comfort, a divine comfort to those who are scared. It's the name of God that he is using. Who is present with them in the storm? Who is coming to them, walking on the water in the storm? It's Jesus. And then we have beloved Peter's response. Peter, still, in the middle of the storm, sees Jesus walking on the water. He says, in his confidence that this is Jesus, not, not Jesus if it is you, but a better understanding of this is Jesus since it is you, command me, call me out onto the water. Peter's nuts. But, but I love Peter. Right? Jesus, if it's you, the storm has not stopped yet, people. Okay? They're still taking on water. The wind is still against them. And Peter says, since it's you, call me out. I'll come. Here we go. And Jesus says, come on. So Peter gets out and he walks on the water. See the confidence in Jesus that Peter has in the midst of this deadly storm. The last place you want to go in the middle of a storm is out of a boat. And Peter's, Peter's just like, say the word, Jesus. Say the word. I'm ready. Right? Let's go. But once on the water, walking toward Jesus, Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. The text says he saw the wind and the waves. He's distracted. His faith falters. And what happens? He begins to sink. And in fear, he cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus reaches down, grabs Peter by the hand, pulls him back up and says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? There's lots of explanations as to why you could doubt, right? The wind is blowing, the rain is falling, the waves are raging. Lots of reason to doubt. But Jesus says, why did you doubt? You knew it was me. You knew it was me who called you. Why did you doubt? Jesus' question reveals Peter's distraction, right? You have little faith. You have smallness of faith. Why did you question? Why did you ever fear? the smallness of Peter's faith, you have little faith. It's not defined by his, here in this point, as his efforts at faith. It's not that Peter wasn't trying hard enough to trust. But rather, the smallness of his faith is defined by the focus of his eyes and of his heart. When Peter loses sight of Jesus, his faith falters. When Jesus is his focus, his strength and the strength of his faith are restored and they walk back to the boat together. And as soon as they enter the boat, the waves stop and the disciples worship him, saying, truly you are the son of God. Friends, Jesus intends to use trials in your life to focus your faith and your worship on him. Jesus used, maybe even intended, this storm upon these disciples in the boat on that night to focus their faith and their worship on him. And we see that that's exactly what happened. When Jesus does what he does in the middle of a storm, affirming Peter's faith, encouraging his faith, as soon as he gets back into the boat, what do the disciples do? They worship. They worship because why? Their faith is focused. They know who Jesus is and they see him rightly and they worship him rightly. So friends, when trials come upon you and your faith falters, when sickness hits your home, when financial troubles come your way and your faith falters, you doubt, you question God's goodness. In those moments, don't try to trust harder. Don't try to have more faith. Don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps of your soul. One, you can't do it. But secondly, we're not intended to. 
Instead, don't trust harder. Just trust better. Don't trust in what what you have to make ends meet. Don't trust in your finances and the future and, and, and what your job may secure. Don't trust in the people that are around you that are failing you. Don't hope for better relationships. Focus your faith. Focus your worship. Focus your attention on Jesus, who's the perfect provider of all things. Focus your attention on Jesus, who meets all of our spiritual, emotional, relational needs better than any human being ever can. Don't trust harder, trust better. Make Jesus the focus of your faith and worship. Christian, in times of trouble, and even in times of of ease and relative contentment in your life, fill your eyes with Jesus and see that the greatest trial in this life, the biggest thing that Satan can throw at you, are nothing but pithy attempts to distract you from Christ's glory. Fill your eyes with Jesus. And friend, set your mind on Jesus and His glory so that you might see clearly that the trials that test your faith are allowed and even ordained by God through Jesus to focus and intensify your trust in Him so that you can worship Him for who He is. Worship Him for what He's done to save you. Worship Him for what He is doing and bringing you to greater faith. Let nothing distract you from your faith in Jesus and worship in Him as King. Fourth and finally in this text... In the last three verses, we see that Jesus rewards even the smallest acts of focused faith. Jesus rewards even the smallest acts of focused faith. There we read in verse 34. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. The storm has passed, the sun has risen, they've made their way to land now. And met again by the crowds at the other shore of the lake, Jesus finds more sick people being brought to him for healing. This time, though, they're asking not to even not to necessarily be touched by him, they're just saying, All we want to do is touch the edge of your garment, the fringe of your robe. Very likely what they're seeking to touch is, uh, are, are the tassels that hang at the end of a prayer shawl that Jewish men would, would wear. They'd put it on under their main cloak, and usually the tassels would kind of hang out under the sleeve, and they would constantly be rubbing against your hand just to remind you to be a person of prayer. And the people are coming to Jesus and say, we just all we want to do is touch the edge of, uh, the, just touch the tassels of your prayer shawl, and we know that we'll be healed. Now, there's a kind of faith exhibited by the people here. But perhaps not the same sort of faith that we see in Peter in the boat in the passages just before. Their faith, those that are coming to Jesus, is a faith for healing. Which is not a wrong assumption of what Jesus can do in his power. It's not wrong to to come to Jesus for healing. It's not wrong to trust him for healing. But I think it is a limited view of who the Son of God is and ultimately what he does. Physical ailments are minor compared to our spiritual sickness. Friends, all of us, apart from Christ, are spiritually sick, terminally ill because of our sin. Because of our rebellion against God, we have a spiritual sickness that we cannot heal on our own. There is one cure, one way to be made right with the God that we have rebelled against. And that is through faith in His Son, Jesus. In His perfect sinless life, His death in our place on the cross, His resurrection from the dead. That's the cure. But Jesus, even though in this instance, 
even though people have a limited view of who he is and what he's capable of, he still, in compassion, stops to heal the people anyway. Church, we do well here to see the, just the continued compassion of Jesus on display. His love for the people of Israel, the people of God, the people from whom and for whom he came to be a savior to all. He loves his people. He wants to heal his people so that they will see who he is and have faith in him for the healing that they really need. But we also do well to see the intensity of the faith of the people, even as limited as it is, to see the intensity of the faith of the people who are coming to Jesus and who, by their faith in him, are being healed completely. The word that Matthew uses uh, here for made well, in verse 36, as many as touch it were made well, is a word that also Im- implies or has ties to uh, this concept of salvation. It's not necessarily meaning they're being saved, but what? What, Peter is, uh, what, what Matthew is saying is that the people were coming were being completely restored, completely healed by touching Jesus. Look, in, in our human frailty, in our human limitation, in, in our, our finiteness, we don't always see all of Jesus all the time. Our view of him is limited. We are, we are limited by our own sinfulness. We're, we're limited by our humanity. But still, however much as you are able to see of Jesus, whatever you can see of him, however, however big you can imagine him, or as, as much as you can, you can picture of him in your mind, or able to understand of him in the scriptures, trust him with all that you have. However much you're able to see of him, trust him with all that you have. Christians, see that in every moment of this life, as a believer, it is Jesus that we look to. It is Jesus that we trust. It is Jesus that we worship. And we do all of this because of who he is and not merely because of what he can do or what he has done for us. If it's true that we worship Jesus for what he can do or has done for us, then we're only worshiping him for the things that that he stands to benefit us. Do you see the selfishness that's in that? All too often, I fear that we trust Jesus. We have faith in Jesus for what we can get from Jesus, not because of who he is. The people that are coming to Jesus here in these verses certainly come to him because they know that Jesus can heal them. But more than that, we see that they come to him because they recognize that he's the only one who can heal them. When we come to faith in Jesus... Unbeliever, you who Jesus maybe is working on your heart today, when you finally and for the, maybe for the first time trust Jesus, when you do that, what you are saying is this. We're saying, Jesus, I trust you because you are the only one who can endure God's wrath for my sin in my place and be raised from the dead. We trust you, Jesus, because you are the only one who could save me from my sin and from myself. Jesus, we, this church, First Baptist West Albuquerque, we worship you because you're the only one who makes a people for yourself out of a bunch of rescued sinners and uses them to take the gospel to the world. Only Jesus could do that. Jesus, we worship you as a church because you're the only one who is worthy of our praise. There is no greater king to serve than you. There is no greater cause to give our lives to than to take the good news of your salvation to those who do not yet know it. There is no greater hope in the world than the hope of eternal life that you have given to us by your death and and resurrection. Jesus, only you could do that. We trust you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus, not because of what you give us, but because of who you have proved yourself to be. Look, church, 
in as much as Michelangelo's David arrests the attention of every eye and soul that walks down the hall of slaves, it pales in comparison to the beauty and the majesty of King Jesus. And we do well as individuals. We do right as people made in the image of God to see our king and forget everything else that came before. To see our king and see nothing else. To worship Jesus and to worship no one else. To submit to him and to no other. Friend, if you don't know Jesus this way, if you don't see Jesus as king of the cosmos this way, trusting him as savior, you're missing it. Look, Jesus wants to save you. He wants to place you in a right relationship with God the Father, your creator. More than that, though, or alongside with that, he also wants to give you real, meaningful life that matters now. I have over the past week, I shared this with my wife just the other day. I have been convicted of of my own distraction by the things of this world. Primarily, Facebook. Okay, so if you've ever been on Facebook, if you know what that is, you start scrolling through your news feed, right? And then, and then you stop when you get to the bottom of the page. On Facebook, there's no bottom of the page. You just, you get stuck there. It's a black hole of, I don't know, uh, stupid cat videos. But, but it sucks us in, right? It's calling for our attention. Facebook is, it, it, is a billion people. More than that, I think, uh, who are all saying, right, through their Facebook feeds, look at me, look at me, pay attention to me. And when we go to Facebook, that's what we do. We pay attention to a billion people with no end. And what do we find at the end of the page? There's just more. Well, there's no end of the page. There's, there's just nothing but, but personal selfishness and self-aggrandizement. Friends, this week, my, my own addiction to Facebook, if you could call it that, has made me physically sick. Why? Because it doesn't matter. I told my wife this week, I said, honey, I want, I want weightier things in this life. I want greater things in this life than the distractions of Facebook and of Twitter and, and I don't know, whatever else is competing for our attention. I want things that, that are heavy. I want stuff that's going to make a difference. Church, do you know where I'm going to find that? At the foot and in the face of Jesus, my King. Do you want weightier things in life? Do you want a life that means something? Do you want greater satisfaction than what Facebook and Twitter and Netflix and YouTube can promise? Come to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Set him as the focus of your faith and worship. And forget all else that is in the background in the face of Jesus, our magnificent King. Let's pray.